Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. What you're seeing in Washington and New York and other places that have been overwhelmed, you're starting to see what has happened in China, what's happened in Italy and some other places where their system got overwhelmed. They have to start rationing care. What that means in Italy right now, for example, if you're 70 years or older, you don't get a ventilator. They're having to make decisions like that. And I think that there are a lot of countries in the world that have socialized medicine programs that those physicians and nurses and staff are used to being in a system where you have rationing. So, for example, right now in Canada, if you're 85 years old and have heart problems or something else, you're not really a candidate. You might, you might want a knee replacement, but you're not going to get on the list for a knee replacement. People in this country, United States, have never had to deal with that. I don't think there's a physician in the United States or a nurse or emergency room that have ever had to deal with having to make decisions about you're not going to get care and you are and having to make those. And the nightmare scenario in my mind is if uh, you get to a place where your community is overwhelmed and the healthcare system just cannot, doesn't have enough resources to take care of all the patients coming in, what happens then is rationing. You have to start making, physicians have to start making decisions about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. And You're starting to see that play out in places like New York and Washington. You've certainly seen it in Europe. You saw it in China. You know, my prayer is that we never get to that place here because that's a big emotional toll on physicians and and nurses and healthcare providers to have to do that because we're not used to doing that in this country. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR. And as always, I'm joined by my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey there, Kelly. How are you getting along? Oh, hanging in there. It's been one of those mornings, so we're we're <laughs> dealing with the learning curve of recording podcasts from three, four different computers across the region. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least we're learning as we're going. This is uh, just chalk it up to a teachable moment, right? (laughs) For sure. Lifelong learners. Well, as our listeners have probably noticed, we um, have been working overtime on the podcast with a whole new slew of special edition podcast content for Misinterpreted, focused, of course, on what else, but the coronavirus crisis response and how our industry is uh, seeking to put out better resources there. And of course, we join them in that effort. There's still more to come in the weeks ahead on the podcast as well. And I'm particularly interested in our discussion today as we uncover another critically important topic, COVID-19 and local community health care. Mary Beth, I would love for you to give us the introductions here of our guests as you know them both personally. Sure thing, Kelly. Thanks. And, you know, so much of the COVID-19 crisis that I would say that middle America, at least, has viewed across the news media has focused on um, a couple of different spheres. One is what's occurred overseas, starting in China and extending across the world, including hard-hit nations like Italy, the UK, Spain. But secondly, also large metropolitan U.S. markets that have registered high case numbers And New York City and the tri-state market up in the Northeast certainly comes immediately to mind on that. 
Yes, absolutely. And understandably so, they are the epicenter of COVID-19 right now, but it certainly seems like there's been far less attention in the media on mid-sized to third-tier metro markets, smaller communities and rural areas, and what we're trying to do to be prepared and to respond as well. Our home base for Fletcher PR is in Knoxville, Tennessee, which very much fits those regional descriptions. And it also really describes a a larger portion of the overall U.S. population. Yeah, it it does. And leaders and citizens of those smaller communities, certainly rural communities, outlying areas, are often feeling left out of the conversation as a result of how the media coverage has at least played out thus far. Personally, I worry about the lack of focus on the virus's emerging spread and smaller markets and how that might feed into a level of complacency or a it-can't-happen-to-us mentality, which literally is dangerous. So what many of these communities face right now is the unknown, just like everybody else. But while we've seen so much occurring for months now on the international stage and now within the U.S. since late February, it's still a big question mark out there exactly how COVID-19 is going to impact smaller communities as well. That's so very true. And here in our immediate region of Upper East Tennessee, which covers portions of the Smoky Mountains and the Eastern Foothills, for example, Knox and Blount counties have the most cases of COVID-19 in comparison with other counties in this same region. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee issued a notice on April 1st that Tennessee needs to brace for a surge in COVID-19 patients which officials expect will hit the state's health system in three and a half weeks. So it's getting real, real fast. Yeah, it's it's daunting. It is absolutely daunting. And our region, as well as so many smaller markets across Tennessee and the nation, we've had more time to prepare than areas like New York, but it doesn't make the task any less stressful or intense for those who are really doing the heavy lifting and given all these additional layers of unknowns. And with these things changing on an hourly, not just a daily basis anymore, literally minute by minute, hour by hour, we've invited guests to the podcast today who are part of the healthcare front lines fighting the virus's landfall in Tennessee. Our guests today bring the smaller community market perspective to the conversation, along with subject matter expertise about challenges unique to community-owned hospitals, challenges that of themselves could be a whole entire additional podcast. Well, today we have officials from Blunt Memorial Hospital based in Maryville, Tennessee, which is part of the Greater Knoxville DMA. Founded in 1947, Blunt Memorial is a 300-bed community-owned acute care medical center, and Blunt Memorial, incidentally, is also a Mayo Clinic Care Network member, which is a very impressive point of distinction. Today, we have Don Heineman joining us as CEO of Blunt Memorial Hospital. Don has been a member of the Blunt Memorial executive staff since 1985 and has served as hospital CEO since July of 2010. So coming up on a 10-year anniversary in that leadership role and also 35 years in service overall to Blunt Memorial. We also welcome Connie Huffman, who has been part of the hospital's team for more than 22 years. Connie is not only assistant administrator of the hospital, but also president and chief operating officer of the Blunt Memorial Foundation, the charitable arm of the hospital. We're so honored to have them both here. Welcome, Don and Connie, to Ms. Interpreted. 
Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're just very glad to have you both here, and this is an honor to be able to talk to you. It's obviously such a busy time. Yes, absolutely. And we've been asking all of our podcast guests during this crazy time, how are both of you and your respective families getting along during this time, Don? Well, it's a pretty exciting time, that's for sure. Uh, I've got, we've got five kids. One of them's in high school, one of them is in uh, college, and obviously the college student from MTSU is home now doing online classes, and the high school student's doing online classes. My wife and I both work in healthcare, so we are at work every day. So it's been uh, somewhat of a blessing to have our college student home that can help the high school student make sure she's doing all her online homework. and we're eating a lot more home-cooked meals lately, so. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> it's been kind of an interesting time. Yeah, thank you to you and your wife for being on the front lines of this thing. And you too, Connie. How How's everybody in your family doing? They're doing well. My husband's currently at home, and we have an 18-year-old junior in high school who's also a football player. So he's been getting up every morning and doing his online classes and then working out. So they're hanging in there. Well, that's good. As we kick off this conversation, Don, we've told our listeners a little bit about Blunt Memorial as a community hospital, but what can you tell us about the community itself that you serve and some of the unique opportunities and challenges that the hospital manages in that role? Well, we have a great community. Our hospital was was founded years ago by community support all across our community. They wanted a community-owned hospital, and back in the 40s, there were several hospitals in nearby Knoxville, but there was not a real modern hospital here in Blount County. And uh, so there's a a group of people here that are hardworking, great people in this community that are very community-oriented. I read one time that we have more churches per capita in this county than any county in Tennessee, so it's a strong faith base here. And that really benefits our hospital and supports our hospital. It kind of lifts us up. Some of the challenges, I think, some places... Our experience across the country is, I think, a lot of places have been a little slow to take this pandemic seriously uh, in terms of the social distancing and things like that that we've been promoting for the last few months. But I think it's it's beginning to take effect. I think when people are seeing the devastation in some areas of the country, I think people are starting to get a little more concerned. And I'm, I'm starting to see a little bit more people taking it seriously, but that, that's been a, been a challenge. Oh, I agree with that on a personal level. I have a 21-year-old son home from Florida State, and early last week, he was not taking it seriously. And this morning, he apologized <laughs> for not taking it seriously and, and actually said, I've been humbled. So maybe all of our, our kids are finally starting to get it, too. Well, well, I, I, and I would uh, have that go across all generational segments <laughs> because it's not just the uh, younger ones, I think, that didn't take it seriously. And I mean, I think all of us have had that, you know, come to our own realization about everything that's going on, on with this and just the, the level of seriousness that it does require. And, you know, Connie, I would like to maybe turn the question over to you about Blount Memorial Foundation. And as a, just a quick full disclosure to our listeners, I do serve on your foundation board for Blount Memorial Foundation as an unpaid volunteer and I've been doing that for about the past year now. I'd like our listeners to hear just about the independent role, too, that the foundation serves in a charitable capacity. would love for you to give us an overview on that just in general. 
Sure, thank you. Blunt Memorial Foundation is an arm of the hospital. Blunt Memorial Hospital is our sole member, and the purpose of our foundation is to serve our patients. It's serve the uninsured and underinsured. And in the past, it's just basic needs, whether they need prescriptions or utilities. When patients are discharged from the hospital, we must have a safe discharge plan. And if they can't afford their prescription or they don't have food in the refrigerator or the utilities are not on, that's not a safe discharge plan. Right. So the foundation's able to help with just basic necessities. That's really wonderful. I, I didn't know that those kinds of foundations existed for when you're released to have that support. That's amazing. So, Dawn, let's get back to you. Let's go back to around February, the beginning of February this year, right about two months ago. It's hard to believe how much the world can change in two months. Tell us about what you recall during that time frame in terms of the information that was coming across from around the world and U.S. health authorities and the World Health Organization. What were you hearing at that time? And what was the point when you thought, oh, no, we better start looking at this situation far, far more closely at a local level? Well, I think it started a little bit before February 1st. Yeah, I think everybody was watching what was going on in China and then Italy and Europe in December and January. And uh, I think kind of a, a watershed moment was when the president put the travel ban in from China. That kind of opened everybody's eyes. And then we started getting our few cases here in the United States and in Washington. So we had a small group of people here watching that going back, you know, late December into January, what was going on. And as you can imagine, hospitals is just part of our functioning. Uh, all hospitals are actually required by the Joint Commission to accredit hospitals to have disaster plans and plans for epidemics or pandemics. So we started really in January starting to pull that out, look at it, make sure we, we were set up for this. And also we were able to have daily calls with our colleagues at Mayo Clinic to make sure our plans kind of were in sync with best practices across the world and what they were doing. They helped us with a few things. We, had, we adopted uh, several of their ideas that they had early on and kind of preparing our plan and activating it. And basically, it's uh, you can imagine that the plan kind of starts off with certain trigger points. So you kind of have a basic structure in place to start preparing. And then the first trigger might be your first case in your county kind of activates the next level of your plan and so on and so forth. It kind of goes up from there. Really, by early February, we had activated our incident command, which which are leaders across the organization, kind of key leaders to meet daily and start monitoring the situation, monitoring our preparedness, and getting people together. And then lastly, we, we just decided early on that we needed to include our workforce and our medical staff in communication. So we've been doing three to four organizational updates that I send out across the organization and to our medical staff and our board, kind of updating on things we're doing, plans we're implementing, to kind of keep them on board. And, and we just felt like it was, they're, they're the most important resource and they needed to be in the loop on everything we were doing, understanding what we're doing and why we're doing. And that's, that's kind of helped calm things and keep people, you know, understanding what's going on. So, it's been kind of this long process starting, like I said, in January and 
into February when we finally activated our incident command and, and started having the daily briefings and the, and the calls with Mayo Clinic and so forth. We talk a lot on this podcast about internal communication being so important, and it certainly feels like, just from what I've seen in the media, that you all have done an excellent job on external communication as well and really have been a regional leader from what I've seen on the news. And so great job all the way around. Obviously, you've got great leadership and you there. And Connie, what was your initial reaction when you realized the gravity of COVID-19 when it was first unfolding? In the beginning, you know, we were still just gathering information and it changes daily. I mean, this is still a very fluid process and the CDC recommendations are changing So we're just trying to gather as much information as timely as we can and just regroup. Yeah. So a lot has happened this week in Tennessee, as we all know, relative to the government response to COVID-19. And we would really like to hear from both of you in recent weeks what it's been like for your team there at Blunt Memorial. I mean, I gather that there's been a major, maybe unprecedented in this community, battening down the hatches and this formal activation of Blunt Memorial's emergency response plans, which are quite sophisticated from what I've gleaned from some of the conversations as part of the foundation board. But what can you really tell us about how all that's coming together and what's occurred lately in that regard? Well, you know, the best plans are ones you don't have to implement. So, one of the things I'm proud of our group on is very early on, like I said, in, in January, early February, we pretty much had our plan laid out all the way up to the possibility of just a full-blown community outbreak and how we would handle that. And we communicated that really well internally with our physicians and staff. So one of the things that I think that's helped us with being ahead of that curve is, uh, like Connie mentioned, there's been so much information coming out that it's just almost by the hour there's a new news alert and uh, actually I think later we're going to talk about how this thing might change uh, our country in terms of how we respond in the future but I think a problem has been in our country is we've got we've got local government officials and health departments we've got state government officials and health departments we've got federal government officials and task forces and CDC and NIA they're all speaking and they're all issuing guidelines and orders. And it's, I think in some way, confusing the public and kind of overwhelming the public about what to do next and what's the latest news thing. We tried to stay calm and just follow our plan. We, we felt confident we had a plan for each stage of the, of the outbreak and how we'd respond. We'd communicate that well with our physicians and staff so they know what's coming. So it's insulated us a little bit from the almost daily, you know, news briefings and guidelines that come out with with changes. I can say our medical staff leadership here has been supporting and communicating with our local officials and state officials, along with a lot of other physicians across Tennessee to try to urge our state to implement the stay-at-home order. And some areas have been reluctant to do that because of the impact it has on our communities. But I think we finally got into that place this week where we kind of issued the stay-at-home order to help slow that spread and flatten that curve like we keep hearing about. So, you know, we've, we've been staying pretty calm and just following our plan, and we felt confident we've had a plan for, for each contingency. 
And we've just been, you know, as the state has issued new orders or local governments issued new guidelines, you know, we've certainly followed those and complied with them, and we stayed in touch on all those things. We're, we're daily communications with our with the state health department officials. So I think it's helped us stay calm, and I, I think that's been an important part. Our, our message from the beginning is prepare, not panic. And right. We've had that focus, and uh, I think we've handled that part well. I think that that is such a unique challenge related to the nature of this crisis and all of the various health authorities all trying to issue guidelines and not necessarily communicating with one another at all times before information is then put forward by political authorities or, you know, political figures and so forth. So it, it does create, a, I think, a very unique challenge that on top of everything else we've never seen before. Don, do you think that we waited too late to issue the mandatory stay-at-home in Tennessee? Well, um, I think some of you might have seen, I think there was a letter that over a 1,000 physicians signed on to urging the governor to do that. What's ended up happening in a lot of areas, in this state, for example, Nashville and Memphis areas were, were hit earliest and it spread fast and there's been other counties that had very low impact. So I think it was a challenge at the state level to issue a statewide order when you had some counties that may have two or three cases and kind of the political impact of the governor ordering stay at home in a county that has two cases and, and the economic impact of shutting businesses down and all that, I think weighed heavily in that those decisions. Now, it's easy to look back at this point and say, you know, a month ago, we should have ordered that stay at home, and maybe we'd have a lot less cases right now in the state. But, you know, again, it's it's changing all the time. I think they've had to weigh a lot of different things in balance. But if you ask most physicians, I'll, I'll tell you our physician leadership here at our hospital, and, and you see it from across the state, have been urging this for, for probably two or three weeks now statewide. So, I think we're we're all glad that we finally got it a uh, statewide order, but you know I understand the the challenge that Governor Lee had in trying to balance the needs in each community versus the impact it'll have on our society and our economy and businesses. I, and I understand why that was a difficult decision. If, if like I said, if you've got a county with two cases, the, the people in that county may not understand why you're shutting their businesses down and everything stop the spread but absolutely not an easy position to be in well from a personal protective equipment or ppe standpoint how are things looking for blunt memorial mary beth and i did happen to notice that denso one of our region's major manufacturing employers for the auto industry made a large in-kind donation of protective face shields to your hospital for staff to wear so it does look like the business community is responding connie what's your feedback on that it's overwhelming. If you're familiar with the history of the hospital, we are a community-owned not-for-profit. And when the hospital was built back in 47, the different businesses helped come together, like the Alcoa employees donated a day's wage to help build our hospital. The business community has reached out with open arms, and they've surrounded the wagons, let's say. You mentioned Denzo, the Chambers reached out, Maryville College, Mastercraft is also helping uh, create face shields for our employees. Uh, Maryville City and Blount County Schools, Rob Britt, the director of schools at Blount County, and Mike Winstead, director at Maryville City, they both 
went through their schools, but the schools closed and brought us the hand sanitizer from the classrooms. So it's truly overwhelming the support our community is giving us at this time. That's amazing. Don, how do you think Blunt Memorial is poised on the equipment front in general for the weeks ahead with, you know, we hear on the news about there aren't enough ventilators, there aren't enough gowns, there aren't enough masks. Is there more that the community can do to supplement what federal, state, and local government is doing already? Uh, well, I'll echo what Connie said. It's really been uplifting and overwhelming, uh, and uh, the community support there. And a kind of a side thing, it's also been uplifting to all of our employees and, and positions. They're obviously under a lot of stress, but they're keeping cool and collected through this because they know we have a plan. But when they see it, it's really been uplifting to them when they're when they're having prayer groups going on, praying for them. They're having organizations all across the community bringing us masks and supplies. The the folks at the college making shields, the the Denso initiative where they're going to try to produce a thousand of these face masks for us. All that's really uplifting and it's kind of a morale booster to our our healthcare providers here who, who everybody else is at home. They're having to get up and come to work and put themselves at risk. So when they see their community step up like that, it's a real morale booster. I mentioned earlier, we, we started pretty early and we were in conversations and daily calls with the Mayo Clinic uh, starting back in late January, early February. So we kind of started planning for this and kind of preparing for all the possible scenarios, including a complete community-wide outbreak and how would we handle that. Part of our incident command center is we've got kind of chiefs of different sections. So we've got a We've got a person that's in charge of tracking workforce. We've got a person in charge of tracking supplies and so forth that all kind of meet on a regular basis and keep up with those things. So we're keeping up with, with all that. What's really helped us is the N95 mask and the gowns that are required to take care of someone in isolation are the ones that most precious and the ones you have to hold on to. You don't want to lose those or waste those. You want to be able to maintain enough supply of that. The other masks that you see are like a surgical mask or a cloth mask that you might see in the community or somebody just wearing that's not the N95 protected. That's where it's really benefited us having the community bring come forth with so many. We've got people sewing them. We've got people donating ones they had in their shops. And that's really helped us supplement supplies and allow us to provide masks for all of our employees that are in patient care areas that protects patients and it protects employees. So the thing about this disease that you read about is symptoms don't tend to show up for five to eight days. So you, in theory, could have a patient here for a gallbladder attack and they could have this virus and be shedding it and nobody knows it. They don't know it. We don't know it. That could infect one of our employees and then we could end up having several of our employees out. We could also have the same situation reverse where you have an employee that could have it and be passing it to, to patients. So really early on, we decided that everybody in a patient care area needs to have a, a mask on, and the cloth masks are fine. So the, the community donations and all the ones that people are sewing is allow us to provide masks for all of our employees to protect them and our patients. And that allows us to conserve the N95 mask for the areas that actually need them for the actual COVID-19 patients or infectious disease or, or somebody that's in isolation. So that's really helped us stretch out our supply and allow us to have a, 
a pretty adequate supply right now that we think that can get us through. But like I said, we also in our plan have plans all the way up to kind of a crisis level if we were to have a, a widespread outbreak. And we were concerned when we saw reports from places like New York and Washington about how you had workers that they were running out and didn't have anything and having to reuse the same PPE over and over for days sometimes. So uh, we did something kind of unique. And as you know, as the governor ordered non-essential businesses and service to be shut down, we took all of those employees that were in areas that were shut down and we kind of created a labor pool and we came up with kind of a production line. Uh, we were able to get some plastic material and have several groups across the organization made up of those employees making our own gowns that were that are protective gowns uh, if we were to need them. Uh, we've also got a group making, we've got a pattern and materials for making N95 masks. So we've got production going on across here. Just in the last week, we've been able to produce about 4,000 items so far of protective gear that we're making in-house with our employees that are in areas that were shut down, like our wellness center, for example, it was part of a non-essential service. So some of those employees and others in areas that have been affected by closing down non-essentials are now kind of manning our production line. And we're creating our own because we're worried in a widespread pandemic, we might be on the low end of the totem pole being a freestanding community hospital in terms of who across the country is going to get the mask and the gowns that are out there. So we just decided we need to kind of take care of ourselves and kind of figure out how to produce our own. What are some of the key misconceptions going on out there right now from your vantage point that you would want the public to become more aware of and maybe even course correct? And I'll, I'll add one caveat to that. We, we know that there have been coronavirus deniers out there or just thinking this can't happen to us or this is not going to be relevant to our community. So we, as, as we kicked off this conversation, it's clear that more communities and more individuals across demographic and age groups are coming around to the notion that, oh, this does apply to me and I, you know, I need to take the steps. But are there other types of misconceptions going on out there that as a community hospital and in your own community, you would want people to know and respond to? Don? I would start with uh, this one. And this, this is something that I had a misconception on back in January. We were first starting to hear about China and the impact. There was a lot of talk early on about that this was mainly serious for people that were elderly or had underlying health problems. And it, it was almost painted, uh, this kind of a misconception was out there that young people, it's just like getting a cold or something and you're fine in a few days. And it's really the older people are the only ones you have to worry about. What the experience is starting to show in the United States when you look at Washington and New York and California, Florida, or where we're having the worst outbreaks. If you look at the hospitalizations, uh, it's across a lot of age groups. It's, it's not just elderly. So it's very interesting when you look at some of the hospitalization rates. And, and right now, uh, in this country anyway, we're experiencing, it's about 10% of people that get this virus end up in the hospital and about 2.5% end up in ICU, most of them on a ventilator. 
early reports from China and Italy were much higher. They were saying 20% were in the hospital and 10% were in the ICU. But one of the reasons for that is because they did get overwhelmed. It overwhelmed their health system. And the people that were dying were seemed to be in the older category. That's not really what we're seeing here in the United States from some of the early numbers. It's it's kind of distributed across all age categories about who's getting it and who's ending up in the hospital. Now, I will say the sickest of the sickest, the ones that are in the ICU on a ventilator, tend to be older or have some other health-related issue like diabetic or some other heart or lung issue where they're compromised in some way. But uh, it really is affecting across all age groups, and that's been kind of a misconception out there, I think. The other misconception is the social distancing really does matter, and I think there have been too many people that just ignored it. They think they're fine or they think they're young or whatever, so they're ignoring it. But probably the biggest thing right now, the misunderstanding has been this really is affecting people across all age groups. It's not just the elderly. Right. Connie, what are your thoughts from your vantage point, especially, I guess, from the foundation viewpoint as well as you're thinking about how to cultivate resources and cultivate community response? Any any thoughts on that? The response we're getting for the foundation through Facebook instant messaging is overwhelming. Again, we've talked about the businesses and individuals, too. Every little bit helps. We had a couple last week drop off 25. The man brought it to the door, knocked on the door, and stepped six feet away. But it was very interesting. His wife taught him how to use the sewing machine. So every little bit helps. But I do want to echo what Don said about social distancing. And my fear is, you know, being the mom of an 18-year-old, the kids have been out of school. And I'm afraid if this carries on, they're going to go stir crazy and they'll want to get out and gather with their friends. And it is so very important not to gather in groups and to, if you have to go out, stay six feet apart, wash your hands. It's basic, basic stuff that we just need to drive in. I, I truly don't think people understand and they're not getting it. Yeah, uh, that's probably a good example where partnering with the school systems to be sure they are putting out the right information since they have that direct conduit, not only to the students, but to the parents. And I'm sure that you all are already doing a lot of that regarding, again, going back to collaboration, making sure that the information exchange across third-party organizations as well that have influence in the community and reach, uh, like the faith community, all of that can so easily come into play. So definitely something that local communities should be thinking about. Which is a good segue into, Connie, what keeps you up at night or what keeps you and your staff up at night? Well, we're human. So even though we're healthcare professionals, you know, the same thing that keeps you up at night, am I going to get it? Is somebody I know, somebody I love, are they going to be affected? What can I do to help? But, you know, healthcare is a mission, and we believe that. So we're professionals, and we're, we're going to take care of you. And we just put that aside and come to work and take care of our community. Well, we thank you so much for that. Don, is there anything that's keeping you up at night right now other than the obvious? Well, I think, uh, you know, obviously I'm a CEO and I have to watch our finances. So 
the thing that I think most people, including at the highest level of our government, have maybe not appreciated is you know hospitals today, uh, most hospitals, over half of their revenue is outpatient revenue. So mm-hmm. things like getting your GI scope or getting a knee replacement or hip replacement or an X-ray, an MRI, a physical therapy treatment, for Blunt Memorial, it's over 60% of our revenue. And when you when you issue an order to shut down all non-essential services so you can preserve PEE, we just shut down a significant part of our business. But we happen to be in a business that we have to stay open and we have to gear up and spend more money to prepare for a potential outbreak on the hospital side at the same time where we're losing massive amounts of revenue on on the outpatient side of our business. So, you know, for example, in the last week, Blunt Memorial averages about $3 million a day in revenue, and uh, we're down to $2 million a day. So we're, we're losing a wow. $1 million a day in revenue from all the services that are closed down right now, right at a time when we're trying to gear up and prepare for a potential, you know, onslaught of patients on the inpatient side. So, we happen to be in a state that's that's vulnerable, and so that's a big challenge of us trying to model and prepare. I've spent a lot of time in the last month lobbying with Washington and, and at state level on trying to get support for hospitals to help keep us propped up at this time. So that's one thing that makes me toss and turn. The other part is emotionally the medical community across the United States, uh, we've got the best healthcare system in the world. I believe that. But the healthcare system is not necessarily prepared for a pandemic. So what you're seeing in Washington and New York and other places that have been overwhelmed, you're starting to see what has happened in China, what's happened in Italy and some other places where their system got overwhelmed. They have to start rationing care. What that means in Italy right now, for example, if you're 70 years or older, you don't get a ventilator. They're having to make decisions like that. And I think that there are a lot of countries in the world that have socialized medicine programs that those physicians and nurses and staff are used to being in a system where you have rationing. So, for example, right now in Canada, if you're 85 years old and have heart problems or something else, you're not really a candidate. You might you might want a knee replacement, but you're not going to get on the list for a knee replacement. People in this country, United States, have never had to deal with that. I don't think there's a physician in the United States or a nurse or emergency room that have ever had to deal with having to make decisions about you're not going to get care and you are and having to make those. And the nightmare scenario in my mind is if uh, – you get to a place where your community is overwhelmed and the healthcare system just cannot, doesn't have enough resources to take care of all the patients coming in. What happens then is rationing. You have to start making, physicians have to start making decisions about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. And you're starting to see that play out in places like New York and Washington. You've certainly seen it in Europe. You saw it in China. You know, my prayer is that we never get to that place here because that's a big emotional toll on physicians and, and nurses as healthcare providers to have to do that because we're not used to doing that in this country. So that's probably why you're seeing, I mentioned earlier, our physicians for weeks have been advocating for a stay-at-home order 
is because I think they realize, they see what potentially could happen if you really got to that place of a, of a community-wide outbreak and you overwhelm the system, how awful that would be. And that's a place that nobody wants to be in. No healthcare provider wants to be in that place. Absolutely not. Yeah, you, you paint a picture here that is based on realism. And as the president had said much earlier on, and so many people had said earlier on, certainly the those in political positions, that this is a war. And what you deal with in war situations, I think about episodes of MASH or things like that, when you think about popular culture and, and how the public can relate to these types of scenarios, those scenes in movies or television where doctors on the battlefield or triaging, whatever, have had, you know, have to make those kinds of decisions. And we in America, we don't think about that. We don't think about that ever even being a possibility. And yet here we are. And Don, you know, your your talk about the emotional toll, I think that segues perfectly into my next question. You know, Pew Research had just come out with a new poll where they reported some interesting statistics about psychological stress that people are dealing with in the COVID-19 crisis here. The report stated, and I'll, I'll quote just a little piece here, health experts are concerned about the potential mental health effects of the coronavirus outbreak in the United States among people who see the outbreak as a major threat to their personal health about one-third or 32% fall into the high-distress category, and 30% who see the outbreak as a major threat to their personal financial situation fall into the high-distress category as well, end quote. So, you know, we live in a smaller community here in East Tennessee where there are personal connections that I think are simply different than what you might have in big cities or metro areas. There's I think arguably a different sense of community here, but do you worry about this aspect of the crisis of community citizens' ability to cope emotionally, Don? Oh, absolutely. And you're, you're certainly seeing it in other areas. If you, if you look at Washington and New York, where they've had the, the worst cases so far in terms of that community-wide outbreak, they're reporting higher incidents of Abuse, uh, divorces being filed, uh, suicide. Last week, you know, the mayor in Knoxville was expressing concern about the stay-at-home order because in a 48-hour period, they had eight suicides in Knox County, which was unprecedented for them. So I think, you know, as background, something I've been advocating for for a long time in, in this state is there, there is already kind of a shortage of mental health resources before the pandemic, you know, part of some of the actions the state has taken, for example, in Knoxville, closing the regional psychiatric hospital, Lakeshore, has really stretched in really across the country. There's just a shortage of mental health resources before this ever happened. So it is a big concern when you, when you change people's lives and you shut people's businesses down and you lay them off and kids are home from school, they can't go to school, everybody's stressed. And it's creating lots of lots of problems in families, really across everywhere. When you do this stay-at-home order, it's very isolating. Mm-hmm. If you think about the elderly folks that are living in assisted livings or nursing homes or independent livings, and all those places have had to to close off visitors, we've had to limit visitors in the hospital. That creates a lot of stress for folks and really detaches them when they can't have their regular visits from their family members. So. 
I think the good thing is uh, two things I'm seeing. I, I think people are trying to figure out how to use technology to video chat and to check in more with people. I know I'm doing that with my family back home in Virginia. The other thing is, is you're right, Mary Beth, being a smaller community, I think there's a lot more personal connection. There's a lot. I mentioned earlier that we have more churches per capita in Blount County than any county in Tennessee. So you got, I know there's a lot of churches checking on people in their, as members of their churches, checking on elderly. We've got people taking meals to people that are stuck home and stepping up with grocery deliveries and all those things. So I see a lot of good things going on about this, but uh, there's no question this is creating a lot of emotional distress for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And we really have to watch that and be in touch with that. I think everybody should be checking in on friends and family much more frequently than you were before because it's difficult for some people. Really I, I so agree with that. Yeah. I, one thing that I've tried to do is make a list of five people every day who maybe I've not been in touch with for a while, but I, I know that they may fall into a higher risk category or I just want, maybe they live far away, but someone I, I care about and I'll just send them a text or send them an email and just say, Hey, I'm just checking in on you. I mean, just to do something for that outreach. And if, if you're doing that for three to five people per day over several weeks, you're really reaching out to a lot of people and it can just open the door and give that conduit for someone who really does need to be able to express just through conversation, what their fears are or express a need, whatever that might be to be able to communicate it. And it can have just a very good ramification on their mental well-being or sense of well-being. This is the time that we're hitting the, the critical time frame in Tennessee with rise of cases in the state. And we're expected to peak in three weeks or so. And I keep thinking about citizens in smaller communities like where I'm from in Western North Carolina, where you really have to go to Asheville or Charlotte to get a higher level of, of health care. So we're lucky that we have high-functioning local community hospitals like Flint Memorial. But if you're in a community that has experienced one of those tons of hospital closures over the past decade, what do you do? I mean, do you think this crisis is going to change the conversation in a major way about what local community and even rural health care looks like and maybe start changing how the government responds to these acute care needs in local communities and rural areas that are somewhat forgotten? Well, I sure hope so. I can't help but think that this pandemic and, and the impact it's having on the country isn't going to change some minds in Washington about how they view the health care system from kind of a 30,000-foot view, uh, if you think about our military, for example, our country views military as a strategic resource, and we, if anything, overfund it and, and have excess capacity, which some people might criticize during peacetime. Why do you spend so much money on military? But the reason is we view that as a strategic resource in this country, and we try to have a military that's geared up at all times that if you did have a threat, then you're prepared. And I, I hope out of all this that uh, maybe the view will change of the healthcare system, that this is kind of a strategic resource that we need to build and fund and have prepared just like this, for something like this, that it won't have such a devastating impact on the economy and on people's lives. 
I can't help but think conversations like that aren't going to be going on, whether it's the CDC and how slow we were maybe to, to get testing out that could have helped stop the spread to some of our response to strategic supplies in terms of ventilators and PPE to having enough hospital beds and having communities that have hospitals in them. Those things are all a resource that we need to start thinking about in that way that if you had a, an outbreak or a pandemic or something, do you have the resources there instead of everybody scrambling around trying to figure out how we're going to pop up a thousand bed hospital in a tent in Central Park, kind of think about those things strategically ahead of time and have those have those capacities already there and prepared for a war like this. I think in Tennessee it's 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 particularly distressing. I think we're number two in the nation on rural hospital closures. Uh, we've had I think twelve hospitals closed in the last five years. We had one announced uh, just two days ago in Dixon County. The board met and said because of the coronavirus outbreak and the impact on their operations that they were announcing they were closing their hospital on April 15th. So that'll be our... Oh, my word. That'll be our... I think there's more of that to come unless the state or federal government steps up pretty soon to stop this. I think there's going to be a lot more of those announcements coming because there's a lot of hospitals out there that just don't have the cash to be able to withstand the loss in revenue and the cost of treating patients. And so right now in Tennessee, with Dixon closing down, that's going to be 21 counties in the state that have no hospital now. So that is like If you think about those citizens in those counties, their health resources, a lot of times when the hospital closes, the doctors leave. And you end up with maybe the walk-in type clinics at a Walgreens or a Kroger or something like that is pretty much what they have. So I'll be honest with you. I don't, you know, we had our testing center set up several weeks ago. We've got resources here that we're, we're prepared to try to take care of our county. I, I really can't imagine what's going on in those 21 counties where there just isn't any resources or, or if it is, it's an hour away or longer to get the care. It's really devastating, and, and it's a, it's been this slow reversal. So the history of healthcare was is after World War II, the federal government passed uh, it's called Hill Burton funds, and there was funds put out to help build hospitals and communities. Uh, and at that time, oddly enough, it was in response to the baby boom. There was so many babies being born, there wasn't enough hospitals out there, and there was funds brought out, and there's communities all over this country that even small communities that might have had a 25-bed hospital that served their community. And what's happened over time with cuts in reimbursement and and changes in healthcare regulations and all that, you just kind of gradually start seeing a lot of those hospitals close down or get bought up. And the focus has been towards the larger systems and things like that. So I'm hoping out of all this conversation, I, I know there's going to be a lot of changes that come. I'm sure there'll be lots of work going on in Washington about how we can respond to a pandemic better than we have on this one. But I hope also including that conversation was about the resources that we really need to, to rebuild in this country so our communities everywhere can have access to health care. It is a really important systemic question, very fundamental for, and it's really a national security question when you really look at the broad scale 
of what the impacts are and in just a lot of different ways and from a lot of different directions. Well, Connie, as we're looking to wrap up the conversation here, I do want to end on a, a little bit more positive and uplifting note. I think that you may have, on behalf of the Blunt Memorial Foundation, a bit of good news to announce. Is that right? I do. Thank you, Mary Beth. I'm happy to report that the boards of directors of both the Blunt Memorial Hospital and Blunt Memorial Foundation announced today the creation of a board member-funded COVID-19 Community Response Challenge to encourage dollar-for-dollar matching support of the coronavirus healthcare needs for our local community up to $42,000 will be matched. Corporate and individual gifts of any amount will be welcome, and we will help support the immediate and post-COVID-19 needs of Blunt Memorial Hospital and our community. This is just so exciting, and I I knew that this was in the works. I did not know what the final number was on that, but so basically how this is going to work then is that the foundation is going to be matching community donations to the Blunt Memorial Foundation dollar for dollar up to that $42,000 amount, so basically doubling the money on that, correct? Correct. For, for the foundation, yeah. So that way the, the hospital can make necessary purchases in this emergency time in a, a much more seamless manner. Is that the way how that works? That is correct. And since this has been in the works for a couple of weeks, Don mentioned earlier the need for ventilators. With the seed money from this challenge, we were able to go ahead and order three ventilators. So... Oh, wow. Uh, those should be here in the next few weeks. So we're very excited about this, this challenge to our community. Are you able to make donations on your website or mail a check or how can people yes, donate? Uh, checks can be made out to Blunt Memorial Foundation and put COVID-19 in the memo line. Or you can go on the hospital's webpage, bluntmemorial.org backslash COVID-19 donation.php. It is on the website. It will be on Facebook. So we want to get the word out. Absolutely. That is a great matching gift situation. You'll have $84,000 if the community steps up, and and I have a feeling they will. Thanks so much, Don and Connie. This has just been a great conversation, and we appreciate from the bottom of our hearts everything that the Blunt Memorial Hospital team is doing and that all of you on the front lines. We just thank God for you, and you're such a blessing, and we will continue to lift you up and, and pray for everybody out there who is you know, really helping us get through this unprecedented time. Everyone, we really appreciate you tuning in. Please stay safe and well. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 